Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bale Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, Mike. Today, we're excited to be joined by Van Carlson. Van is the CEO of Strategic Risk Alternatives, and he helps entrepreneurs manage risk more effectively through self-insurance. He focuses on intangible assets, which often traditional insurance companies are not set up to effectively insure. What are intangible assets? They're things like your brand, your intellectual property, etc. Not necessarily your plant, your equipment, your building, uh, which traditional insurance really helps. So we had a very interesting conversation, uh, and I certainly learned a few things. So I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. Agreed, Bela. But before we begin, we want to share with you that our podcast today is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startups. We thank Phillips Lytle for their support of the entrepreneurial community and their sponsorship of the Unconventional Path podcast. Okay, so with that, let's move to the interview with Van Carlson. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Van Carlson. He is the founder of Strategic Risk Alternatives, along with several other businesses. Strategic Risk Alternatives is a business that helps companies manage and mitigate risk in their own businesses. Welcome to the show, Van. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, uh, uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. So let me ask you a question, uh, and this is how I usually start my podcast. If, uh, if you're at a social event, and uh, not a social event uh, that's within your network, but sort of you know, a new social event to you, and you introduce yourself to somebody, and they say, oh, very nice to meet you, Van. What do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I think the key part is who's who's the audience. I do have four different companies, so depending on what, I'll, I'll wear that hat for that company in that particular time, depending on who the crowd is. But what I mostly do for for uh, I I manage clients' risk. Uh, I mitigate their risk through their businesses um, with concepts that um, Fortune 500 companies use, and uh, you know it's an educational process. Um, but managing risk in an ever changing world. Um, is important to a lot of business owners, and but it's you know it's it's hard to get that thirty second pitch in uh, sometimes when I go down that road because uh, it just spawns on more questions sure. uh, from from most from when people inquire about it. But uh, we met. We're, I'm a risk manager by heart. I can pretty much talk you out of anything or talk you into anything. But I will tell you the good, bad, and the ugly of your decisions. Um, and uh, you know I don't know. Um, I have friends that don't talk to me about certain things they're going to do because I'll tell them what could happen. Because uh, when you've been in risk management for 30 years, you've seen a lot of things go wrong unexpectedly, and um, it stays with you. And so, anyway, but that's uh, that's what in my heart of heart, I'm a risk manager. Okay, excellent. And and so, what does Strategic Risk Alternatives, the company, actually do? Yeah, so Strategic Risk Alternatives um, is a insurance manager. Uh, a lot of clients, uh, a lot of clients, a lot of business owners aren't familiar with the way we do our bit, our, do our program. But um, it's self-insuring risk, and how do you mitigate that risk more effectively? Uh, I believe traditional insurances do a great job insuring the the, the tangible assets of businesses. Uh, that's the buildings, the vehicles. They do a really good job with that. General liability, the fire, theft, vandalism when there's damage done to the the tangible asset of the business. Uh, the harder part becomes the intangible value of the business. And most of our clients are entrepreneurial-driven clients, and, and they actually value the intangible assets of a business more so than the tangible. Um, and so the insurance industry finds it very, very difficult to insure the intangible assets. So they're either going to limit them or exclude them or not even cover them at all. And so we'll kind of come in, you know, do a risk analysis of their business under strategic risk alternatives, I have 13 very good uh, teammates uh, that will go dive into their businesses, find out what they're self-insuring for. A lot of times, the clients already know what they're self-insuring for, because unfortunately, they've had a they've had an experience. Um, a good example is what's going on right now, uh, the coronavirus that's going on right now. 
a lot of business owners are finding out that their business interruption policy is not going to cover them. Um, you know, in the past, we designed policies already to overcome that issue, and then we create an incentive for them to own their own insurance company. And uh, I think most of your listeners would would uh, would would agree with me that some of our strongest financial institutions in our country is really our insurance industry. And it's the way they're taxed. It's the way they're uh, looked upon as a as a for-profit entity. Um, there's a lot of advantages to owning an insurance company. Just ask our, our friend Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett owns, uh, he's a master of owning insurance companies. So there's a lot of advantages to it. And uh, so we're, we're mostly educators, um, understanding the concept, the pros, the cons. And like I always say, the good, bad, and the ugly, we're always going to tell them. And it's a tool in a tool chest and all that good stuff. But yeah. that's what we do. And then we manage the, we don't try to complicate the business owner's life. We'll manage that insurance company for them. And, and make sure it's feasible, fee fee sensitive, all those things. So it's the client wins and we win. I mean, our, our firm has to make money, obviously. Um, but we ultimately, we want, our, we want our clients winning the most. And so that's what we do. Excellent. So, so in preparing for this conversation, uh, I read something on your website about uh, 831B tax code. And that was some yes. change in the tax code that enabled certain things to happen. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, 1986 Tax Reform Act, uh, when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill uh, uh, were running Congress and the executive branch, and there was a big reform act. I, you know, I look at that reform act, that was huge, right? I mean, up until then, you could write off all your interest rates, you can do, it was a massive tax, tax reform act. After that reform, I think you can only write off your mortgage interest rates and stuff, but it was a, fun, it was a big change in the tax code. Um, they introduced the 831B tax code into... Uh, existence in that reform act and what was really happening back in those days where farmers were self-insuring crop insurance uh crop insurance in the private sector and i see private sector for uh, you know profit driven businesses uh, insurance companies were getting out of it because it wasn't profitable anymore it's kind of like hurricane earthquake and all those types of things today um and you know self-insuring risk is not a deduction so they had to create an incentive to own your own and they introduced the 831b tax code uh, at that point, you could put up to $1.2 million a year into your insurance company. Um, and now, due to the PATH Act, uh, they bumped that up to $2.3 million. Um, it was signed by Obama, went into existence in uh, 2017. Now they jumped it up to $2.3 million. There was some things, there was some funny business being played with the tax code, unfortunately. Um, and they closed some of the loopholes in the PATH Act. So some of the abuses that were occurring um, are eliminated. Um, but no, the 831B was designed to really recognize self-insuring risks business owners take on and how do you make it to where you can build up a tax advantage reserve account to fight the fight in the event um, these things were to happen. And that really comes back to crop insurance. Uh, crop insurance today is probably the largest uh, crop subsidy. We hear crop subsidies. It's really the crop insurance that's being subsidized. Um, uh, so, uh, but up until that point though, Farmers were on their own for crop insurance, and so that's what it originated from. And of course, now, 34 years later, it's evolved to a lot more. Um, you know, we've got a lot, we got a lot of issues with supply chain risk now, uh, brand protection, cyber. I mean, I can go on and on about risk. I mean, risk is never hard to find in, in the world of business, right? And uh, unfortunately, we find most a lot of business owners find themselves more and more uh, in a position of self-insuring risk. Yeah. And we just try to bring the efficiencies into and utilize the tax code. Yeah. So. Yeah. So now large companies, it's my understanding, and I'm pretty naive about this. So I might ask you some questions that you roll your eyes at and say, that's really dumb, but <laughs> no, bear with me. No, no. So large companies have been self-insuring for a long period of time. I think they've had the ability to do that. And what makes it easier for a large company to self-insure than a small company? Well, you know, prior to, to, to 2008, the financial, um, what do they call it, the Great Recession, um, you know, it cost $250,000 just to phone me on insurance company. And then, uh, you know, law firms were charging those kind of exorbitant amount of fees because they could. Um, a good, you know, when you talk about, and, and I don't want to get too geeked out on insurance and risk, and I can find myself going down those, those paths, and, and I'll avoid that. <laughs> Very good. Because uh, I love risk. I love, I mean, I could talk about risk all day long. But... Um, you know, nobody's going to sell product liability insurance to Microsoft, right? Um, you take some of your oil companies, right? I mean, 
finding a pollution policy. A good example is the BP's uh, uh, offshore drilling rig, right? Um, nobody knows how to underwrite those risks. I mean, when it happens, it's it's so catastrophic, right? So, um, you know, they have to self-insure risk and they have to put money away. Now, it's still an expense out of their operating company, and they they're just trying to build up funds on the back end. Because, um, like I said, Zurich Travelers, you know, you name it, Hartford, nobody's going to sell those guys traditional insurances they might insure their buildings for fire and stuff like that but they're not going to offer them liability insurance they're yeah. not even offer them slip and fall coverage in their office buildings but when it comes to their their tangible products you know it's 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 too big it's too overwhelming and so fees were pretty exorbitant at the time and now after 08 you know like everything else in life you know there's there's more competitors in this field there's more knowledge about it uh, there's more cpas aware of this advantages and that's really where I got involved in the business was, was in 08 as well, of clients owning their own insurance companies. Um, and so I was very fee, fee sensitive. And so that's why we're able to work with a variety of clients on a variety of levels of what the revenues of their businesses are. Because we believe all companies, we believe this will become a normal business practice of owning some kind of form of your own insurance company. And it's not because of the tax advantages and all that. It's really out of necessity of risk. Uh, traditional insurance companies aren't going to run out there and, and increase their risk of ap their appetite for risk anytime soon, especially what's going on today. Uh, you know, we're business owners, and, and, and this is a catastrophic loss, right? And the insurance industry would be, if they didn't have exclusions on their policies for business interruption, uh, a lot of them would be, could potentially be in trouble. Yeah, with the, just to put this in context, we're recording this right in the height of the COVID-19 epidemic yeah, that's COVID sweeping the world, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, take me through this. Let's say I'm a small business owner. And, uh, you know, like you said, I can get insurance for, I can get health policies for my employees. I can get the building insured, the cars insured, those types of things. But sort of my intellectual property, the, my brand, right? The places where my real value in my business is, if I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going to sell something. You know, the building is the building. That, that's really not the valuable You've thing. You depreciated it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the intellectual property that I have. Yeah. Uh, so, so how would, how would we, how would we engage and how would we think, how would you educate me to think about that so I could be self-insured for that or be prepared for something to happen to that? Yeah. So when I speak, I speak in front of a lot of different conferences, a lot of different industries, and of course, a lot of CPA conventions as well. And, and one of the things we talk about is the intangible assets of a business. How are you managing that risk, right? If that's what you're valuing most. Uh, how are you? How are you mitigating the risk to it, right? I mean, I, I think the biggest intangible asset of any business is the cash flow of the business, right? The cash flow itself is the greatest, more likely the greatest intangible asset of the business, right? How do you protect the net better? And so we we talk to them about that. We get them over that hump, um, and then we start talking about, hey, there's some strategies that big companies deploy, and you know, due to due to cost structures, you're in a position now to you know play in that same arena. Uh, where you know the big boys have been owning their own insurance companies for a long time. They, there's some tax advantages to doing that. Um, there's obviously rules you have to play by. I mean, there's a four-part test to make sure you you meet the qualification to elect under the 831B tax code, for example. Again, that's what strategic risk alternatives make sure our clients adhere to. Um, but absolutely, I think I think you know, unfortunately, a lot of our clients um, have had incidences where they would have loved to have their own insurance company to build. Because I tell clients, if you're going to fight the fight, you're either going to fight it with after-tax money or pre-tax money based on this tax code. Um, brand damage is going to happen. Unfortunately, cyber policies are, are being written better today, but they do they still offer very, very poor sublimits for brand damage um, and all those types of things where, just like you said, their brand you know, it takes years. It takes, it takes years and years to build um, your brand, but unfortunately, uh, it takes seconds to destroy in, yeah. in a social media driven in environment we're in. And so when you have to go fight that fight, you have to correct the wrong, you're going to need cash to do it with, you know, is that going to give you, is the bank going to give you a more bigger line of credit all of a sudden when you got contract contraction on your cash flow? No, I will tell you, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> banks got to do what banks got to do. We know that after 08, right? So you know, all those things, you know, and, and, and here's the thing I tell clients all the time, and it's very simple. If you're having a good year, just to take a little bit off the top and park it off to the side is this good risk management. 
unfortunately, we don't live in a, a society where saving money is incentivized, right? I mean, it's more incentivized to, in a business world. It's more incentivized to spend it, right? To spend the money. Don't build up the reserves because you, you know I just get I just get retained earnings at K ones. So I still pay taxes on it, and the money stays in the company. Um, you know, do we want to go out and buy more equipment so we can take advantage of the 172 and all that stuff, right? So, so those are things that biz- most business owners know. I try to get them to understand. Hey, listen, this is a forced savings plan. There's rules and regulations to doing this program. It's not a tax-free checking account. You know, there's the money has to be put in there for a certain period of time. But the bottom line is, is when the world takes a turn against you for whatever the reason is. Um. You'll have you'll you'll be able to fight the you'll be in a better position to fight the fight. Yeah. So if I understand this correctly, because of this change in the tax code, uh, the eight thirty one B, it enables me to set up a insurance company, and then I, as a as a business owner, the business can put money into that insurance company as a nest egg, let's call it, and it's got tax advantages because it's pre taxed money that I can put in there. Versus yeah, so taking the, the some is, some of my profits and putting them into a bank account and using that as my nest egg, is that fundamentally what's going on here? That's exactly yeah. The only the, the only little piece there is you're able to take that expense out of your operating company or the 162 line item deduction as a necessary and ordinary expense, no different than your work comp, your liability, and everything else. So you're expensing at your operating company level. So instead of leaving the earnings in there, like you just said, because the earnings is going to be you're, that's going to be a taxable vehicle. Right. Now you're able to expense it, and you're able to drop it into this vehicle. Got um, it. You know, so so that's right. And then the nice thing is this this entity, this insurance company, is a C corp. Mm-hmm. You know, and the advantages to us the, the double negative about a C corp is hey, the profits of the company gets taxed plus the dividends. Well, under the eight thirty one B. Now, and you have to, you can't, you know, it's a big number when I say $2.3 million. Most of our clients are, are far, far less than that. Maybe on average about 100000 a year is what they put into it. But, and it has to be justified and it gets back to rules. You can notice, you know, when we're describing this, it, this sounds pretty good to be true, right? And so you can just imagine how court cases, and like I said, it's been around for 34 years. Um, so there's plenty of laws and rules and regulations put in place on it, but we, we mitigate that for our clients. Uh, that's why we have a job. Um, but you can expense in your operating company, but the insurance company doesn't pick the premium up as income. That's advantages, right? Now, when you take it out as a shareholder, if you shut it down, uh, you take, you decide to take a dividend out. Now you pay long-term dividends or capital gains rates, right. whatever. Right. Right. So there is some arbitrage going on there. And that, that's what gets the attention from the IRS. Um, and again, there's rules and regulations out there you got to abide by and, and, uh, but it's just good risk management planning, uh, bottom line, yeah. you know, so, and it gives you a lot more dollars to fight the fight with in the event you need to. Yeah. Is there a, is there a particular size of company, maybe, re- you know, annual revenue or something where this starts making sense? Yeah. I would tell you that, you know, um, I would say a million or more in gross revenues, you know, our price structures. But just so you know, I mean, I, a lot of clients, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, we do a lot of warranties. Uh, we, we cover a lot of warranty exposure for business owners. I mean, warranties today are a way to build confidence to the consumers and really to compete with your competitors. Um, you know, the, a lot of clients don't know this, but the auto industry actually owns all their own insurance companies for their extended warranties. I don't know if you've had the pleasure of buying a vehicle in the last couple of years, but they pressure you pretty hard to buy the extended warranties. And the reason why they're doing that is because they're expensing all that premium is their money. They're just pushing it out into their entities, into their insurance companies. Um, huge advantages to doing that. Right. And so those are things that we're doing for a lot of uh, subcontractors that want to offer warranties, home builders that want to offer, Hey, I'll, I'll give you a one year warranty. But you know, if you want a five year warranty, it's $2,000 more for the sale of the house and it covers I mean, there's a variety of things going to the warranty. Warranties are great value add to consumers, whether they want them or not, or you just give it to them. It's it's about retaining customers, right? In the world of everybody's fighting for everybody else's customers, uh, by offering a more uh, uh, a robust warranty, you know, um, Best Buy offers it, right? You buy anything today, anybody, everybody's asking, well, they're all taking that expense in other operating companies and they're dumping it into these insurance companies. And they're building up huge amounts of reserves. 
Uh, I want to take that concept and put it to business owners that are in a position to do the same thing Best Buy does or anybody else is doing it. Yes. There's advantages to that that could be a game changer. I mean, it could be, you know, and bottom line is you want to be able to honor your warranty. If you're going to sure. get a five-year warranty out there, you, you better have some money sitting on the sidelines to be able to honor that. Right, right. You know? Yeah, and I mean. It's just good efficiencies yeah. of business. Yeah, I ran a manufacturing company for a while, and, and we used to put a warranty reserve away every year, right? Because we had a warranty on our product or, you know, any a product recall. So we used to put a, actually a couple hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> into the kitty to build up that reserve. Right. And unfortunately, depending on how you structured it, that actually still that's self-insuring that risk still. So is it is a deduction or not a deduction, right? That's again that A thirty one B coming in existence, so you can take that deduction and be able to put this money aside. Right. So that was a big uh you know, like I said, I you know, uh, we have a lot of clients that have warranties and uh, they do exactly what you're doing and then we show them what we we can do. We're either gonna save them a lot of the costs on warranty costs to begin with because of the after taxes versus the pre-tax. And and then two, you got to rely on the current economy to make good on your word. Well, we know what that looks like, right? I mean, if the economy slows down, I'm not selling enough product and use my current cash flow to make good on my warranties right. that I sold three years ago. Right. And that, you know, where's that money going to come from? I mean, right. so, so the efficiencies of the business it starts to be more and more robust. And, and that's, I know risk takers take a ton of risk to do what they do every day. And if we can mitigate that risk a little bit by utilizing, um, you know, smart CPAs have told me, said, Van, they make the playbook, they make the rules. You just got to know how to go play the game. And, and the ones that play the game the best are always going to win. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm a small business, is there a way for three or four or a half dozen small businesses to get together and, and form one insurance, you know, sort of a co-op type of thing where one insurance company can do this? Or do I have to do it uh, basically by myself? You know, not necessarily. We have those concepts. We have those things. We have uh, guys with uh, multi-level marketing will do that. Guys that, uh, um, you know, uh, those, you know, multi-level marketing are the guys that are selling stuff out of their houses or, you know, you know, you don't have to explain that. Those guys are, but those, those are guys that we could build. And we would call those, we would call that a controlled group where, you know, we're going to ask, okay, you guys got 10 owners in this insurance company. We're going to form a board of trustees. I need three of you on there. And those three are the three we're dealing with. I'm not going to herd cats with the other 10, but we work with your board, your board of trustees on managing this insurance company. And so we absolutely do that stuff. And that's, that brings the pricing way down to where some of these guys can do twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year, and it makes sense to them. Uh, I should also mention that we have a great dental product for a dental warranty program. If a dentist wants to start offering warranties for their hard appliances, anything that's, a, anything that's appliance, anything that's a tangible appliance, you can offer a warranty on. I, I think offering a warranty on your dental procedures are a, a game changer in your local communities. Uh, but you need to be able to honor that. And the best way to honor that is putting some profits away from that procedure and tucking it away for the rainy day down the fund in case that client comes walking back in, you know, you got the money to do it with. You're not going to try to take it out. I mean, again, it's the efficiencies of business that we want to educate business owners on and, and why some, some of your competitors might be more aggressive about biz. And it's maybe it's the way they're structured in the back room on their warranties that that gives you a disadvantage and you don't know it. Right. You know, right. we've seen that. Yeah. So, so Van, I, I think your microphone slipped behind your shirt collar there and it's rubbing a little bit. Oh yeah. That's very <laughs> good. Yeah. You don't have to hold it in front of your mouth, but it was, it just plopped behind your collar there. All right. Yeah. Uh, so if I wanted to, uh, to, to, to start something like this, uh, I'd call you, right. I'd give you a buzz at strategic risk alternatives. I'd ask for Van and, uh, how long does sort of the process take? And, and at, you know, because I'm putting money away. So in, you know, the first year, I don't have a lot of money in the kitty, in the insurance companies, for example, right? It takes some time to build it up. So talk to me a little bit about the process and how, how I need to think about the timing. Yeah. So we, you know, I tell clients, insurance companies do three things when they underwrite risk, right? They're, the first one is they're going to charge appropriate premium for the risk they're going to limit the risk or they're going to exclude the risk. Okay. We offer limited risk policies. So we'll, we'll allow clients to fund the first year, but we're going to have limited, limited, um, risk on those policies. You know, your bucket of money is only going to be reflective of what you can, what your insurance company can afford to, 
because because one of the other challenges is insurance company is only as good as its promises promises it can fulfill right so uh, we always got to make sure that it's solvent enough that has enough capitalization so this is a this is a ramp up program but you're still getting coverages during those during those years that you have less coverages or less premiums or less reserves or surplus or whatever we want to call them in the insurance world but um, but this is more of a you know uh, a rabbit hole, but I, not not to be negative about it, but it not it's not even being negative. It's just it's comp it's complex. Uh, business owners are hearing this for the first time. Like, what do you mean I can own my own insurance company? Yeah. Well, a lot of times the first time, you know, I hate paying my general liability policy because I've never had a claim. You know, and I tell them I'm like, good for you. I, I mean, I can never think of a good situation when insurance is used, right? But it's not a it's not a good day, I promise you. But um, Anyway, but I we're not here to replace those traditional insurances, and that's what most business owners jump to because they look at that expense and it, it drives them nuts, right? I mean, you're you're you were a manufacturer, you probably didn't have a lot of product liability claims, I would imagine, but you probably paid through the nose for it, right? right. So that gets that gets old with a lot of business owners, right? But I tell clients all the time, I'm not here to increase or decrease the risk you currently have. I'm here to recognize risk you don't have insurance for, and how do we mitigate that better? Yes, and but. But there is some, I mean, the four-part test is serious. I mean, you know, you have the potential to pay other people's claims, a portion of other people's claims, and there's got to be a pooling. There's got to be a distribution of risk. And this is where I'll, I'll just get in the weeds a little bit real quick, and then we'll come back out. But in order to own, one of the basic principles of insurance is the, is the rule, the law of large numbers. Without the law of large numbers, you really can't justify yourself being an insurance company. Because you got to be able to spread that risk out amongst many different avenues. Not everybody's going to have an auto accident at the same time, but you also don't want to insure just one auto, right? You might have to insure a thousand autos to cover that one auto. You know what I mean? It's, it's that kind of a thing. So so we create pools in the back room um, that allows us to take a, to, to still call ourselves an insurance company, make sure we can put a distribution of risk in. So one of the four one of the four part tests is distribution of risk. How What does that look like and how does that work? And, and we always make sure our clients understand that. We have a lot of training videos, educational videos, I should say. Um, so they can get a full, full, uh, you know, maybe get a 101 level uh, understanding of it um, and uh, know that we got guys on the, on the payroll that have PhDs in it. So, but at the same time, we're not here to complicate their lives either. I think most of our clients that we have on the books, unfortunately, they've had an experience where they said, man, I would have loved to have a a rainy day fund set aside for unforeseen issues, right? So that's what all, a lot of our clients come to us for. But all that aside, it is it does get complicated, um, it, you know, especially when you're hearing it for the first time, and you might need to hear it ten times to to understand it. And uh, but at the same time, just know that we we'll work with all, any type of clients. And you know, like what you brought up earlier about the controlled pool. Yes. A lot of times they they have their own inherent distribution of risk, especially if there's ten different companies and they're spread out geographically, and you know we love that stuff. Like peer groups in the automotive mechanical world, for example, they have different peer groups. They could be a peer group can they could be one in Idaho and they could be one in New York, right? Or you know they all do this, right? They get on Skype and talk about their businesses. We can form an insurance company with those guys too, and then they can start offering extended warranties on their parts, for example, their water pumps, their you know whatever they want to do, road hazard warranty on tires. I mean, there's a variety of things that we, so we're doing that. So that gets, that's pretty easy. But when you start dealing with, um, brand damage, um, you know, some robust cyber coverage, recall policies today are, are, we've got really terrible sublimits in them that if you, if your product was to get recalled, they can recall your policy, but you don't have a business. Right. But, uh, so there's a variety of things that go on out there that, you know, we, we identify and we work with the clients on it, but, we want to make sure they get educated, and and we tell we we work with a lot of their trusted advisors, CPAs, and and uh, um, financial advisors, and even property. We work with a lot of property casualty agents. Uh, unfortunately, you know, on a, you know this this uh, this uh, this virus going on right now. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the property casualty agents out there are, are are doing the one thing they hate most when it is talking to their clients and telling them they're not covered. Yeah. Um, and so. I always tell property casualty agents, I said, guys, this, just understand this. Put, put it, it's a tool. Put it in the box. For the right client, it could be a game changer. Um, and you can really be a, a, a differentiator for a trusted advisor to that client and yeah. by bringing these kind of ideas to the, to the table. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is a process to it. 
Now, it's my understanding that insurance companies are a regulated industry, and they're often regulated at the state level. So how, how do you sort of, yeah. you know, deal with that? Yeah, you bring up a, a, a somewhat of a uh, additional complications. Uh, <laughs> you're absolutely right. States are, are regulated at certain levels. Um, and this could be, a, 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 this is a long conversation to have when it comes to, and we call it a domicile. Where do you form your insurance company? Well, do you want to, uh, your Fortune 500 companies, uh, UPS, Amazon, all the big, big companies, they all form them offshore. And Cayman, Bermuda, St. Kitts, Turks and Caicos, uh, auto dealers form their extended warranty programs offshore to get around state regulations. Unfortunately, states want to have, the, you know, back in 08, there were six states that promoted you owning some kind of form of your own insurance company in their states, meaning they had laws on the books. Utah's out east. Uh, Delaware is the one back east that was pretty big at the time. I think now the Carolinas are as big as Delaware. And um, uh, the point is, is there's now 34 states promoting you to own your insurance company in their states. Texas, this came on last year. And I think some other states are looking at this year. And what they're doing it for is revenue. Of course. Right. Of course. No different than why Bermuda or anybody else, right? They're going to charge premium taxes. They're going to do all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so, but what we do is something very unique. And uh, a lot of our a lot of our folks like it. Uh, we don't like going offshore. Uh, going offshore brings scrutiny to you. Um, it's Bring, harder brings other to risk, open too. a bank account. It does. It right? does. The Patriot Act kind of tightened things up offshore to where, you know, it's very difficult to do banking, for example, um, if you own companies offshore and all that good stuff. So, um, and there's some additional complications with tax returns and all that good stuff. Uh, but at the same token, we didn't want to go out to the states because states states are going to hurt our business from the standpoint they're going to require too much capitalization for the smaller businesses that we want to help. Our clients that we work with, um, it's going to be it's going to be costly. The premium taxes are going to be costly. The fee structures are going to have are going to be costly. So what we did, um, actually working with some very smart CPA firms out of uh, started out of Joplin, Missouri, and we ended up in Oklahoma. Uh, we actually work with uh, federally recognized Indian reservations, and we'll form the insurance companies on federal lands. So it's still considered a domestic company. Uh, there's no additional filing from the from uh, from the IRS standpoint, um, and the Indian reservations are making very very good revenue off of it. Uh, you know these guys form their own Department of Finance, Department of Insurance, no different than states have, um, and now they're collecting the revenues, they're collecting the premium taxes, they're you know, so so it's a great benefit to our clients. Um, a lot of business owners that understand it, that have worked with Indian nations in the past, know the advantages that they have over other um, government agencies, let's say. And so, and it's good for them. It's it's a great revenue source for the for the Indian nation. Yeah. And uh, you know, they just basically push paper. Um, our clients get an EIN number from Oklahoma. Uh, it's a domestic company. Uh, we do a federal tax return. There's a federal tax return done every year on the entity. Um, there's no state tax return because it doesn't reside in the state. Right. Right. Um, so, so there's a lot of advantages to it. Again, there's a complication to it. You know, I, I tell clients, you know, this is something you got to get your head around. It's, it's work on your business, not in your business mentality. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like I said, a lot of our business owners, uh, this, these are very healthy, uh, uh, Indian tribes, uh, fairly sophisticated. Uh, they love banking and financing. And, uh, I think you're going to see more and more of that come online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we've seen the casinos come online and the revenues that are being generated there, they're able to expand into other industries and, uh, take advantage of the treaties. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was great. Yeah, so that was a really good education, sort of a baseline, uh, conversation about these various different ways of uh, uh, giving me a tool to help manage my risk, right? Or when something go, when something, when something hits the fan, as they say, right, I have some <laughs> reserves uh, that I've been able to put together to help me, help me respond to that. So I want to switch gears a little bit, Van, and I wanted to talk about a little bit more about yeah. you and your personal journey and your uh, entrepreneurial journey. So uh, where'd you grow up? Where, where were you born? Where are you from? You know, I grew up in California. Okay. I was a, I was a I worked in the uh, I worked 
I worked on my dad's, my mom and dad's farm. I was, I grew up in the valley being a farmer and, uh, it was a, a great way to grow up being a farmer. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, and, and you went away to university, college and stuff? Yeah. I joined the Coast Guard for four years oh, out of high school. Very nice. Um, had, had a great, uh, I was stationed in DC actually for a couple of years, not too far from your yeah, uh, I went to New York several times. Um, I was actually in the Presidential Honor Guard with Ronald Reagan and George Bush, and we got the pleasure of traveling with them at times. And then I ended up going down to Cape Canaveral for two years uh, down in Florida uh, doing offshore patrols with the Coast Guard. Great four years. I, I joined to get the GI Bill, and then I came back home to Boise and uh, finished up with a degree from uh, political science uh, from Boise State University. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. after graduation, what did you do? You know, uh, I was working for FedEx, and I uh, was going through their management training program. And I'll never forget, I was back in Florida. I was in an interview for uh, a position, as a management position there. And uh, I, at that time, I, I had my first son, and uh, I wasn't interested in moving from Boise. And so I saw this Help Wanted ad uh, about starting your own insurance company and uh, started an insurance agency. And uh, if you don't know much about Boise and the Meridian area, at that time it was it was a very very small, sleepy little town. I mean, uh, I think at the time when Meridian first started, and that's the town I actually live in as a suburb of Boise, had maybe twenty some odd thousand people in it. Now it's got uh, what is that? That that started in ninety six, ninety seven, and now I think we're up to hundred almost one hundred twenty thousand people. So, you know, good good time to be in the property and casualty insurance business when you want to put a uh, and we did some, you know, we did a lot of things. I grew my agency very quickly. I mean, I, so I, I did, I said, I passed on the FedEx career driven thing. I didn't want to hate Christmas. That was the, you know, you work for those shipping companies. <laughs> Excellent point. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> you end up hating, the, you end up hating Christmas, but, uh, I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to enjoy Christmas. So, uh, anyway, um, but yeah, that's why I got into the insurance business and that's where I first started owning my own business. I hired my own employees and and I took a lot of the stuff I, I learned back when I was a farming and when I worked on the farm. But what we did back in the farming days is uh, whatever we didn't sell to Safeway on the week on the weeks, because we were growing melons and, and apricot and fruit trees, we'd go to the farmers markets on the weekends. And uh, I would sell I can remember being six, seven years old, sitting on the back of my dad's truck selling and towards the end of the day when the farmers market was getting ready to close. My dad would say, sell it all. And I, I remember selling watermelons. I mean, like massive watermelons, like three, four dollar, just so we wouldn't bring them home, right? Yeah. I mean, I always go to the farmer's market towards the end of the day if you don't care what you're going to get because you're going to get some great prices But uh, because nobody wants to take that stuff home. But no, I can remember that. And then I always took the uh, – and I had some good mentors. I had some good people tell me some things that uh, – really helped me out grow my business. And I was able to, you know, take advantage of the growth we were occurring too, you know? So grew my agency up pretty, pretty sizable, um, became a top tier agent for uh, actually for farmers insurance. Okay. And, and this uh, is a traditional agency, right? Uh, property casualty yeah. type insurance, right? Yeah. Uh, selling yeah, did, the traditional yeah, did, products. Yeah. Home autos, a lot of commercial insurance. Um, you know, towards the end of that, uh, my wife joined me. She stopped working. We had, we, you know, kids were growing, and you know, we were in a position to, 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 to live the American dream. We had our own small business. Uh, you know, we had good, good team of employees, and uh, my wife was able to work with me, and and uh, we raised our kids, and uh, and then you know, 08 came along, and uh, it kind of shook us. It shook me up a lot, um, watching business owners go out of business, and. It was, it was a, it was a trying time for a lot of us, and um, I'll never forget that time. And and, and you know, unfortunately, it, I'm having some flashbacks. What's going on today, with uh, what's going on, and, and business owners today too, taking the risk they've done to do what they do. And you know, it's it's, uh, you know, we're not making we're not making more risk takers. I'm afraid uh, I, I, that concerns me. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, and and so. You were in this traditional uh, property and casualty insurance agency. You owned it. You ran it. You grew it. And then, at what point in time did you sort of branch off into what you're doing now? Yeah. So I had my wife take the agency over. I, have, I was had a pretty good contract with Farmers, which I was fortunate enough. And my wife actually ended up running that for another five years. So I was able to keep my cash flow going with my traditional insurance, even though we probably lost 
I mean, we lost a sizable portion of our business because, you know, 08, 09 happened, right? A lot of business owners at that point in time, you kind of evolved your career. Uh, I didn't need to talk to people about home and auto so much because I hadn't had a good team dealing with that. Uh, I wanted to deal with business owners and, and that's really what, uh, I, I, that's what I enjoyed about the insurance business was going out and talking to business owners uh, about how, you know, coverages work and what kind of policies. And of course, pricing is always a sensitive thing with businesses, which I can completely appreciate with. And so, you know, but these business owners became friends, you know, and, and, uh, you know, these were community leaders, you know, and, and unfortunately I, you know, I saw this all happen to them and, and they didn't have a lot of tools that, you know, even when they talked to their CPAs, I mean, they just, they're just not a lot of tools. I saw a lot of them cash their 401ks in, you know, to stay alive. I mean, there's just not that many tools given to the small to middle market business owners. Unlike the big companies, they, they get a lot of tools available to them because they have a lot of advisors that, and the co big companies have no problem spending that kind of money to get that advice. Most business owners, small, they don't want to talk to their CPA about too much and they stop for all, for all you know, don't, certainly don't want to talk to an attorney. So, you know, those are all things that, you know, and so I, I wanted to be a game changer because I actually witnessed these products, clients having these tools and putting away money for the, all those good years leading up to that 08. And they were the guys showing up at the auctions buying their competitors' equipment. And the biggest reason is because they had the money to do it with. And, and I thought, this is the way business owners should be looking at their risk. You know, we'll, we'll do a good job, the best we can do traditionally, but there's just too many things. There's too many gaps. There's too many holes in traditional insurances. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, like what we're dealing with right now with the pandemic, you know, when SARS hit back in um, mid 2000s, I believe, a lot of insurance companies got sued for business interruption and because of the way they defined it. Well, some lost and they end up paying out some pretty big claims that they didn't actually intend to to do. They didn't, you know, that wasn't in their underwriting. Right. right. Well, what they did was they put an exclusion on the back end now it's a pandemic it's pandemic or if it's a uh uh where you have to be held up like we're doing right now in, in your own homes um a quarantine uh it's not going to be covered under business interruption clauses and so um you know we're dealing with that right now we have a lot of clients that are dealing with that right now so my, my point of all this is is um you know we we i i was uh I was looking at myself. I was losing revenues. I was thinking, how smart was I? How was I mitigating my risk? <laughs> you know, in the financial world that we, we, we found ourselves in. And so I just wanted to, to, to take this concept, bring it, to the, bring it to the small to middle market business owners, which, you know, these are the guys that want to keep their employees pay on the payroll. They're doing whatever they can to keep their, their employees on the payroll. I mean, you got big companies furloughing their, their employees. I mean, they're worried about getting these employees back, you know, when they go try to go reopen. And it's the cash flow. You know, bills didn't stop coming, right? So how do you keep the cash flow going? I mean, all these things come up. And, and again, I think if business owners just had these tools at the right time, the right understanding of it, and, and again, just to take a little bit off the top and park it off to the side, you know, in a forced savings account is what I call it, that has tax advantages to it, um, should be the difference between living and dying. And and potentially, when you have these downturns, competitors contract, and you can come out the other side of this thing, and you can actually be stronger coming out the backside of these things. I, I, I witnessed that as well. And so, again, these are things that, um, you know, it, I just want to bring that to the – these are tools, again. And uh, for the right client, it could be a, it could be, it could be the lifeline they need at, at, at the wrong times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So if uh, you made a comment a little earlier about uh, risk taking, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial risk taking uh, yeah. and, and, and that maybe that uh, you don't see as much evidence of that as maybe in the past. So if you were if you were mentoring or advising some young entrepreneurs, uh, what would what would be Van's top three points that you would sort of try to share with them? That I could tell you that what what drove me right as yeah. my revenue increased. One of the things I always did, I was very disciplined about it. And I don't know if I, I I don't know if I got it just by accident or what. But as my revenues grew up on my property casualty agent, so when I stood out, when I started out, I said, okay, 
I can live on 30% of my revenue, but the other 70% is going to go towards the expense of the company, right? And as the company grew, my revenue grew. But if you don't adjust to your expense ratios, you end up you end up that that 30 and 40 or 50 cent uh, split. You know, it the percentages aren't the same anymore. If you're keeping the same dollar amounts going, you know. So I always tell business owners and, and startups, I'm like, when you start to have success. Don't back off the pedal. What got you there? Don't go out and get bigger cars. Don't go out and bigger, bigger. I mean, it's none of that stuff. It's that's a sucker's bet. I promise you. Just keep spending the same amount of dollars you started out in your business when you first started, because that's really this to me. And some and a lot of people miss miss that. You know, um, if I'm making fifty thousand dollars one year and I made a hundred thousand, but I used twenty five thousand in the first year to go marketing of that fifty. Well, and then the following year, I need to be spending fifty thousand dollars on marketing, not twenty five. And and unfortunately, a lot of those, a lot of business owners miss that, you know, because everybody wants the lifestyle. Everybody, you know. And then the other one would be is is um, work just as hard for yourself as you were for the company you're working for. You know, I was selling my soul. I was ready to do whatever it took. I worked seventy hour weeks at FedEx, and I thought to myself, well, if I'm willing to do that for a company. That might get me a gold watch 50, 30 years from now and call me a dinosaur because I'm the guy that's calling these guys dinosaurs. I mean, I could see I could see the writing on the wall, right? You know, I'll be that guy that I'm complaining about right. that's in mid-market management and he's checked out. And I thought, you know, that's not for me. But I gotta if I'm willing to work this much for a company, then I gotta be willing to work this much for my own company. Right. And again, right. I think a lot of business owners miss that too. So that's the two biggest things I learned from business is is you gotta put the sweat and tears into it and you gotta and and running scared is a good thing. Being scared, it it uh, it it heightens your uh, senses for a lot of reasons, and right. uh, and I think uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, and that never stops in some ways. Yeah. So. Well, that's great advice, Van. A, a, a very nice way to wrap this up. Uh, I appreciate you being on the show. <clears throat> you were a great guest, and uh, thanks for giving us an education on this. Uh, one of the ways to sort of mitigate some of our risk for our small businesses. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for your time. You betcha. Bye-bye. Bela, this is an interesting conversation. You know, I have found that managing risk and understanding insurance is something that a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be not so good at. Uh, entrepreneurs are often focused on serving customers and creating a positive culture for their employees. And often they either don't understand or choose to ignore, I'm putting it nicely, some of the less obvious types of risk that business owners of all sorts are faced with. There are different types of risk and entrepreneurs need to understand the risks that they face. Uh, and once they understand those risks, then some of the things you can just buy insurance for. And Van talked about, yeah, insurance is good for certain types of things. Um, they're insurable at a reasonable cost for like fire insurance for a building or liability insurance in case of accidents on your shop floor, things like that. Um, and they should have a plan for dealing with risks that are not insurable. And uh, as Van mentioned, things like pandemics uh, or acts of God, which can be a big factor with climate change, right? Hurricanes and things like this, this idea of things that interrupt your business are often not insurable. And even a lot of people are going to learn in these weeks with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that things that you think might be insurable, there's an exclusion, right? Is what is what um, Van was talking about, that there's something in the policy that said it isn't included. I have a couple of friends in the insurance industry and they I asked them really early on, I'm like, what's this going to do to your business? And they're like, nothing. This is not covered. Any There's no policy that we write that covers pandemics, right? It's all excluded. So some people might be in for some surprises if they don't really know their insurance policy. So I think this is this is kind of really important for for us to understand. Um, you know, the secondly, the point that I think is important is that um, this idea of self-insurance, because uh, it's something I'm familiar with. You mentioned the auto industry, and I've been uh, part of an auto retail startup, and this is something that we wound up doing. And at first, I was really scared about it. It sounded illegal right, or unethical. Um, but then the more we learned about it, um, the more uh, we really found out that it was a smart move to do warranties and self-insure by putting some of your profits away, taking the tax benefits of that, and then having this, this money to cover uh, insurance or loss or whatever. Uh, and it made a ton of sense. So, you know, I guess that what uh, Van was saying really resonated with some of my business experience and really actually made some good sense, even though my initial response was not positive to this when I first started learning about this. What's your experience been uh, in the startup world with liability, risk, and insurance? Well, Mike, it's really interesting how, how in the startup world, 
We often don't think of these things. Uh, yes, we, we buy insurance for the building and, you know, liability insurance if someone, you know, gets hurt, uh, slips and breaks a leg or something like that. Uh, but we don't often think about other things that can happen to a business. And what your goal here is with insurance is to, to if something bad happens, or let, me, let me say something bad, something unexpected happens, your business can continue. That's the whole idea here, right? Is you want to keep going. You want to keep your business moving forward. You don't want to have to hit the pause or stop button because something unforeseen happened. Now, it's interesting. If you look at most manufacturing businesses, they often file money away for warranty reserves. They do that all the time. It's a standard. And oftentimes your accountant will tell you if you have a warranty on your product, uh, you got to put some money in the bank uh, to cover uh, the cost of those warranties. Uh, and that's sort of an insurance. And that's something that we're very familiar, familiar with. Well, one of the things that Van was talking about is we also know there's other things that can happen, uh, whether it be acts of God or something unexpected. Uh, and so you want to have a cushion, right? The, the real message here that I got from my conversation with him was this notion of having a cushion, uh, a, a little bank account that you're putting money, it's like your retirement savings, right? You're putting money into it every month so that when, when you don't have income, uh, you can draw on it uh, to keep your business going, to keep your business alive, and, and to keep it moving forward in the, during those tough times. Uh, because remember, when you have a business that's ongoing, uh, it's much easier to sort of... Uh, come out of a, of, a, of a bad time or a downturn than it is to have to start all over again. So that's sort of one way to think about this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm putting money aside uh, to sort of self-insure. And as Van pointed out, there's also some tax advantages to doing this, right? So there's, there's, there's more to it than just putting a dollar aside. Uh, there's some advantages you get by actually putting that dollar aside in a certain format and in a certain instrument uh, that, that makes it even more beneficial to you. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting concept. It's something that you don't see a lot of small companies doing. Um, and it's something that I think uh, we should all at least be aware of. And as a CEO or a company founder, you can make a conscious decision about whether you want to do it or not. Don't make the decision out of ignorance. So I think that's the that's the real message here. Yeah, I agree, Bela. Uh I have another question for you. So one of the things um, that I can I can foresee if you're wearing your VC hat and you're looking at a startup and they're giving you a pitch and they've got pretty high insurance expenses. Do you look at that kind of it's like wait those are way, those expenses are way too high. Or do you see that as a smart entrepreneur? Um, I guess put it another way. Do you like to see risks identified and risk management in a pitch? Absolutely, right? Because being a VC is all about managing risk. And, and, and the last thing you want to have happen is you make a $5 million investment in a company and then something unforeseen happens and you lose your $5 million and the company's out of business. That just generated a zero return for my venture fund. So this notion of, number one, identifying the risks, knowing what they are, and not just a, not just the risk of a competitor or not just the risk of you know, the market not accepting your product, but these other risks can be just as devastating to a business. Uh, identifying those risks and then making sure you have something in place to help mitigate them. Uh, and you know, so, so there really is... Because that's what the venture capital business is all about. It really is about managing risk. And this is another way of managing risk so that, that if something unforeseen or unexpected happens, your business is not forced to shut down. So I think it's a smart thing to do. Yeah, when I'm coaching startups, I, if I don't see anything uh, about risk in the, in the pitch or in the business plan, I, I usually push them on it. And I say, okay, it's a very basic uh, just come up with a two by two matrix and come up with your 10 or 12 uh, risks that you can possibly think of that would impact your business and place them on this matrix. So if you can imagine a, a, a you know, two, 
a horizontal axis and a vertical axis. And on the horizontal axis, you've got a likelihood of the uh, event occurring, low at the bottom and high on the top. And then on the horizontal axis, you've got the impact on your business, low on the left, high on the right. So in the upper right quadrant, you've got something that's highly likely and it would have high impact, okay? So that might be um, if you own a flour mill and you're located on a river that floods all the time. And you know, right, if water gets in that flour, you've got a whole bunch of pizza dough uh, and you can't sell it all. So that would be a high, uh, you know, a risk of flooding is gonna be something you need to deal with immediately in that business plan. If it's in one of the two quadrants, it's either um, high probability and fairly low impact or low probability and really big impact, I wanna make sure that those risks you at least are aware of and understand. And then some risks may be low probability and low impact. You don't need to worry about those. But if you can place your risks on a two by two matrix and say for those things that are in that top right corner, high impact and high likelihood, that you've got a plan for dealing with that. Either it's insurance or like what Van was talking about, self-insurance or some sort of risk pooling or having a extra distribution center where you, or a warehouse or having a second uh, plant uh, that you can go to, uh, to to fill your customers' needs if there is a problem. All those things I want to see in the in the pitch. I want you to be able to talk to. Um, so that's a nice way, a nice simple way. This two by two matrix that you can kind of show your investors or show the people that you're pitching that you have a handle on the, some of the different risks. You know, I don't know any anything else to throw on top of that, Bela. No, I think uh, I think we covered this uh, topic well, Mike. That was a good way of thinking about it, thinking about this matrix and sort of categorizing them, uh, and and that's a good approach for sure. Yeah, and going to a guy like a person like Van, right, to help you with some of these risks. To like you said, keeping your cash flow going in the event there's a problem, and things with intellectual property like brand and image, and right, those are some things where maybe you can't buy an insurance product, but you can go and either self-insure or what we call risk pooling, right? Finding other. He talked a little about that. Finding other people that you can share that risk with, uh, and small businesses can now behave like big companies, right, through the help of these types of advisors and brokers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and let me give you a concrete example. I just thought of this, Mike. So I was working with a company, uh, and they picked out a name for their company uh, that made a lot of sense to them and made a lot of sense to everybody. And uh, they, uh, they were getting ready to introduce their product. They introduced their product, and a week later, they got a cease and desist letter from another company who had registered that name as their trademark. Now, yeah, they didn't, they didn't do the trademark search, which they should have, right? But oftentimes little companies don't do that. Uh, and it was a weird enough name that e even I as an advisor didn't think of it, so shame on me. Uh, and it had to stop all of a sudden. They couldn't use that name. Uh, so it delayed their product launch by a good you know, three months to sort of sort through what they were going to do. Is it real? Is it not? Et cetera. And... Um, you know, they didn't have any insurance for that. Now, I don't know if you can get insurance for that, um, but uh, certainly if they would have been putting some uh, of their own money away for sort of business interruption, sort of that little uh, nest egg uh, for some extra cash to keep the business flowing and running, uh, that would be very helpful. So a lot of unforeseen things can happen and uh, having a way to uh, protect yourself against that, either through buying commercial insurance or going the self-insured route, uh, as I just is is just some good advice. Great example, Bale. I love when you come up with these on the fly because that's absolutely a, a great story and something that fits. Um, all right, so let's wrap it up. The takeaways today, I think, first for small business people, if you aren't thinking about this, that thinking about risk and understanding the risk that your business faces is of critical importance, um, and then. Understanding the tools that you have to manage risk beyond just traditional insurance, I think, is really important and enlightening. Um, and then knowing the rules so that you can balance cash flow, risk management, and tax benefits of things like warranties and insurance products like Van was talking about is, I think, something that's interesting for some types of businesses to consider. Um, and then the idea of giving small businesses similar opportunities to manage risk actively as large businesses do, uh, especially through things like risk pooling and self-insurance, can be really important tools for a small and growing business. So I think this was all really, um, I think, some interesting things to think about and maybe not uh, traditionally what some of our listeners think about, but, um, but, but worth contemplating. So listeners, we're happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week. We hope you find the last hour or so entertaining, interesting, and thought-provoking. At this point, we want to once again thank our sponsors, Phillips Lytle LLP. 
If you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I can confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Hey, Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? So the best thing to do is give uh, Rich Honan a call, who is a partner at Phillips Lytle, and you can reach him at 518-618-1225 or at rhonan at phillipslytle.com. And you can always find his contact information in our show notes. So thanks for joining us this week. If you have questions about what we discussed today, suggestions about future topics or some great potential guests, please do get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do. We have lots of great guests in the pipeline. So until next week, signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, have a great week. Thanks, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. Have a great week and stay healthy. Stay healthy.